Great to see you this morning. Let me invite you to open your copy of God's Word to Matthew chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. Wrong book of the Bible. Mark chapter 12. Grateful for uh, Pastor Brian preaching for me last Lord's Day and also for Zach Watson who preached the week before that. Again, if you didn't get to hear either Zach or Pastor Brian, go on to our YouTube page and listen to those very good sermons. Mark 12, verses 1 through 12. Let's read our passage as we begin today. Hear the word of the Lord. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this in Scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. This is God's inerrant and authoritative word. Let's pray and ask for his help now as we look into uh, this passage. Father, do grant us grace to see and hear uh, not just the words on the page, but the truth they contain. Uh, Lord Jesus, speak to us this morning, we pray. May the words of my mouth and the thoughts of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my strength and my redeemer, quicken us as a congregation to hear your truth, to grow in grace. Lord, and for those here who have never put their faith in your atoning work on the cross, Jesus, may they come to see you as the perfect sacrifice for sin. Help us now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is uh, a quite an unusual passage today. I don't know if it struck you as such as we uh, read through it just a minute ago. It's a, it's a departure from what we've seen before in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, this is not at all usual, uh, and it, it is not Jesus' normal way of speaking to those people outside his kingdom. Uh, earlier in Mark, he explained to his disciples the reason that he would often speak in parables. Uh, in chapter 4, he said, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, 
But for those outside, everything is in parables so that they may indeed see but not perceive and may indeed hear but not understand unless they should turn and be forgiven. So the meaning of Jesus' parables was usually hidden from people outside of the kingdom of God. Uh, but this is completely different. This is an a, a entirely different direction that we find this morning. This parable is specifically addressed to those outside the kingdom. Uh, and, and what's more, it's clearly understood by those outside the kingdom. I mean, even his disciples struggled with what the parables meant at times. But here, uh, it's the Jewish leaders he's speaking to, and they get it. They get it. Down in verse 12, Mark reports, and they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived, they grasped, they understood that he had, he had told the parable against them. Uh, so these verses are a clear message to the unbelieving Jews of Jesus' day. They also happen to be a clear message for unbelievers in our day. These are words addressed to anyone who has yet to put their faith in the atoning death of Jesus. So what's contained in this clear message? What does Jesus say in this clear message to unbelievers? The parable that Jesus uses serves as a summary of the tumultuous history between God and Israel, uh, their stormy relationship. It's a snapshot of their history. And in this brief history, Jesus makes three statements about his father's dealings with Israel. In his clear message, he makes three statements about this stormy relationship. In the first statement that Jesus makes, uh, he describes his father's gracious provision, uh, how God has graciously given and established Israel in the land of Canaan. Let me point out three things here in regard to his gracious provision. First, we see that it was God who established Israel. Uh, hopefully, that's no surprise. Notice verse 1 again. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. Israel didn't become a nation, escape from slavery in Egypt, and conquer much of Canaan because of their own initiative and from their own strength. All these things happened in Israel's history because God orchestrated them. Listen to God describe Israel's formation and escape from slavery in Egypt. This comes in Deuteronomy uh, 7, verse 6 through 8. The Lord says, You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a, to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. 
but it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8. God did everything. And then listen to how the Lord describes Israel's conquest of the promised land going forward in history. The Lord says, I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you. The two kings of the Amorites, it was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. That's uh, Joshua 24, 12 through 13. And so first we see in Jesus' parable that it's God who established Israel. Israel became a nation, escaped slavery in Egypt, and, and conquered much of the promised land because God was behind it all. Well, this brings us to another thing, a second thing that I want to show you about his gracious provision, and that is God not only established Israel, God protected Israel. And Jesus mentions two ways in this parable that the Lord protected Israel. Uh, he protected them through a fence and through a tower. Verse 1 continues, And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower. Let me mention the fence first. This was a, either a wall or perhaps a hedge some kind of enclosure. Uh, this not only kept the grapevines from growing outside the vineyard, this also protected the grapevines from, from wild animals that would come in and devour the grapevine. This is what we read in Isaiah chapter 5, that the Lord would break down the walls and animals would come in on graze on the vineyard, his, his, his people Israel. Uh, so a fence was usually built around the vineyard to protect the crop. And then also he mentions a tower. This was an actual tower built on a high spot in the vineyard. Uh, and this was guarded uh, with a watchman. A watchman would ascend the tower. He could observe uh, animals and thieves trying to sneak in and, and steal the crop. And he could also protect the vineyard with a sling uh, from this point of view. And this is how God protected Israel. Consider some of the men and women that God used throughout Israel's history to fulfill this very function. Uh, people he raised up. There was Joshua, of course. And the Lord said to Joshua in Joshua chapter 1, verses 5 through 6, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Going uh, uh, forward a little further in Israel's history, uh, there were judges, men like Gideon, who who the Lord raised up to protect Israel, and of whom the Lord said, Go in this might of yours, and save Israel from the hand of Midian. 
Do not I send you. I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. That's in Judges 6, 14 and 16. There's women like Ruth and Rahab and Esther, who became a queen to King Ahasuerus, uh, discovering a plot against the Jewish people. Her cousin Mordecai said to Queen Esther, and who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. That's Esther 4.14. And, and these and others God raised up throughout Israel's long history to protect Israel from her enemies. So we see that God not only established Israel through his own might, we see that he raised up people to protect uh, his people. Judges and kings and prophets and others. There's a third thing we see here about his gracious provision. And that's God entrusted Israel. And by that I mean God entrusted Israel to spiritual leaders who were called to lead her to follow the Lord and to bear fruit for him. Uh, this is in the very last phrase of um, verse 1. It says, uh, built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. These tenants represent the spiritual leaders of Israel. Their primary role was to see that the vineyard produced a harvest of grapes. And so to accomplish this, these tenant farmers would prune the grapevines and they would stand guard in that tower that we saw earlier uh, to protect the crop from animals and from thieves. And in return for caring for this vineyard, the tenants received a portion of the produce. That was their pay. The landowner uh, took uh, a third to a half of the crop, and the remainder went to the tenants as their payment for guarding his vineyard. And so these tenants represent Israel's spiritual leaders and Israel's shepherds. But just like actual tenant farmers, Israel's spiritual leaders were, were often unreliable and came under intense scrutiny and criticism from the Lord. Let me mention a few of these examples of men who didn't fit the bill, so to speak. There's Eli in the book of Samuel who fell short. And the Lord said to Eli, why, uh, why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? Uh, Eli knew what his sons were doing was wrong, but he gladly ate the portions of food that they were thieving from the people of Israel in their sacrifices. I mean, who would think, who would have the nerve to steal from God in that way to take and remove part of the sacrifice and, and consume it themselves? And then in Isaiah's day, the Lord spoke to the shepherds in general, and he said this to the shepherds of Israel, Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. 
Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people, you have scattered my flock and have driven them away and you have not attended them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. That was uh, actually through the prophet Jeremiah 23, 1 through 2. And then in his own day, Jesus spoke to those shepherds as well. Uh, in, uh, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. God had entrusted Israel uh, into the hands of shepherds and spiritual leaders who more often than not fell far short and were unreliable. Listen to Dr. Sproul uh, describe it. Uh, describe these tenant farmers. He says, So the owner of the vineyard put his operation in the hands of men who were not completely trustworthy. Not only were they not trustworthy, they were, in fact, evil. So this is the third thing we see. God entrusting Israel and Israel's spiritual care to those who proved unreliable. So, in Jesus' first statement, uh, he describes his gracious provision, his father's gracious provision for the nation of Israel. But in, in this clear message, he goes on to make another statement, a second statement. Uh, he describes his father's gracious provision to begin with, but he goes on and to, to describe his father's extraordinary patience with the nation of Israel. I have that effect on a lot of people. I'm used to it by now. Uh, listen to the Father's extraordinary patience. Uh, uh, we observe uh, this in, in verse 2. Notice verse 2 in your Bible. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Uh, the season that he's referring to would have been the first harvest, and that would have been five years after the vineyard was planted. There were strict guidelines in the law of Moses about when you could start collecting fruit from the land, and, and you had to establish a, a tree or a plant. Uh, had to be there for five years before you could collect its fruit. And so these, this owner has been waiting a long time to get his first harvest and, and see the return on his income. So you can imagine just how anxious he is to see fruit finally and receive, uh, receive some income. And so to collect what he was owed, again, that's up to half of the, half of the crop, he sent a servant to collect his portion. But he got nothing no return on his investment because of instead of giving the servant what they owed, they beat him and they sent him away empty-handed. This is a, a picture of the Lord's prophets. They're often referred to as servants throughout the Old Testament. He, he calls them, my servants, the prophets. 
And this is how we see the Lord's extraordinary patience toward Israel. Time after time, the Lord sends prophets and judges to encourage Israel, to warn Israel, to call them to repentance. And but time after time, they abuse, they mistreat, and they even put some of his prophets to death. Look at verse 4 now. Again he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. Uh, one scholar uh, notes that this phrase, beat him on the head, can also be a reference to decapitation. And if that's the case, this might specifically refer to John the Baptist, who Herod of late had removed his head at the request of his wife Herodias. Look at 5, verse 5, and he sent another, and him they killed, and so with many others. Some they beat, and some they killed. This is extraordinary patience on the Lord's part to send messenger after messenger, calling them, pleading with them to turn from their wickedness and return to him. And verse 5 also describes Israel's ongoing disregard and abuse of these servants of the Lord. Isaiah, uh, Elijah, rather, was driven into the wilderness by King Ahab. Uh, the prophet Zechariah was stoned by King Joash near the altar. Uriah also killed by the sword. Jeremiah was beaten and put in stocks in the courtyard. Legend also says that Amos, Micah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Joel, and Habakkuk were killed. Isaiah, uh, Hebrews tells us that he perhaps was sawn asunder. And the Lord offers this commentary on his patience through Jeremiah. From the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, to them, day after day. Yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. Jeremiah 7, 25 through 26. Second Chronicles offers a similar summary. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. This extraordinary patience it's the same thing that you and I observe even now. God is delaying his judgment, not wanting any to perish. Uh, Peter writes, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. 2 Peter 3.9 God's word says in Romans 2, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, 
you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. What we see even now in our world is this extraordinary patience of God poured out on those who have exhausted uh, God's kindness. Years ago, uh, there was a man named Robert Ingersoll. He was an American author and lawyer and public speaker, and he's noted for campaigning in favor of agnosticism. That's the belief that uh, we can't know for sure that God exists. And he was delivering one of his public addresses, uh, speaking on behalf of agnosticism, pulled his watch from his pocket and said, according to the Bible, God has struck men to death for blasphemy. I will blaspheme him and give him five minutes to strike strike me dead and damn my soul. There was a period of perfect silence while one minute went by. Two minutes passed and people began to get nervous. Three minutes and a woman fainted. Four minutes, and Ingersoll curled his lip. I just wonder if there's anybody there who was perhaps maybe cheering for God to uh, come through on his... At five minutes, he snapped shut his watch, put it in his pocket, and said, You see, there is no God, or he would have taken me at my word. This story was later retold to a a British pastor named Joseph Parker who commented on this uh, scene. And did the American gentleman think he could exhaust the patience of God in five minutes? Exhaust the patience of God in five minutes. In this second statement regarding Israel's history, Jesus describes his father's extraordinary patience. I want to mention to you this morning, if if you have not put your faith in the atoning death of Jesus, that God is waiting, but he will not wait forever. And he is waiting and delaying his judgment in kindness to you so that you would turn from your sin to trust in Christ's payment for sin on the cross. God is patient, but it will not last forever. So, secondly, again, Jesus uh, describes his father's extraordinary patience towards Israel. So, uh, we've seen his gracious provision in establishing Israel and protecting it, his uh, extraordinary patience in sending Israel prophet after prophet after prophet Thirdly, the third statement that Jesus makes in regard to Israel's history is his father's grave pronouncement. This we find in verses 6 through 12. Uh, Here we see the son is rejected and killed and raised up and exalted by God. Three things to point out to you in this third statement. Uh, To begin with, we see the ongoing generosity of, of God in verse 6. It says he had still, this is the the, um, landowner, the vineyard owner, 
representing God the Father, he had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. The landowner here believes that the tenants would not go so far as to mistreat someone with a legal claim to the property. And instead of turning his back on Israel for the way they treated his prophets, uh, the father, in a a profound demonstration of love for sinners, he sent his one and only son. And so, one man observed this, this, the allegory reveals God's continued pursuit of humans, no matter how often the overtures meet with rejection. Charles Spurgeon uh, said this, if you reject him, he answers you with tears. If you wound him, he bleeds out cleansing. If you kill him, he dies to redeem If you bury him, he rises again to bring resurrection. Jesus is love made visible. And this is what Jesus describes, how the Father uh, has, in his ongoing generosity towards Israel, sent one other messenger, and that is himself to the nation of Israel. Well, we see a second thing, and that is the ongoing wickedness of the nation of Israel and and its leaders. Look at verse 7. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. Uh, Worthy to notice the word, how they refer to the son, they call him the heir, and they call the land the inheritance. And this indicates they believe that the, the landowner has died. Uh, and that his son has come into possession of uh, the property. And if they put the son to death, the land would pass to them, uh, and they can control the property as they wished, or so they believed. And they act on this uh, faulty assumption. In verse 8 it says, And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. And I think we need to stop and and feel the ice that would have flowed through uh, the the chief priests uh, and the elders' veins at this point as Christ names exactly what they were planning to do. How they would have been chilled and possibly even outraged to hear that Jesus knew exactly what was in their hearts. This takes place on Tuesday of Passion Week, and just uh, three days later, Friday, they will carry out this very thing, arrest Jesus, torture him, and then kill him outside the city gate or outside the vineyard. This is exactly what any one of us would have done. Listen to Dr. Sproul's comment here. Our fallen nature is such that we are not simply indifferent to God. We hate God. God is our mortal enemy. 
And fallen human beings will stop at nothing in their attempts to throw off the sovereignty of their creator. We should not believe that the world is truly indifferent toward God as it professes to be. If God himself came to earth today and people were given power to destroy him, he would surely be put to death. I'm not speaking theoretically when I say that because it actually happened. It happened just as Jesus said it would happen. Just a few days after he spoke these words, they seized the son, abused him, and killed him outside the city, outside the vineyard of God. And after all this time, after all these prophets, prophet after prophet, after captivity in Babylon, and after the son himself comes uh, proclaiming repent and, and uh, believe in the gospel, their wickedness continues. Uh, continues in their hard-heartedness. But we see one more thing here. And the tables finally turn, and that is ongoing triumph. I, I say ongoing because there's never been a time when God's plan has been derailed by sinful men, let alone the chief priests and the scribes. It, it might appear that uh, the father is impotent uh, against the tenants in this parable, that he is powerless. It, it might appear to you that uh, the father is impotent in the world around us. He is not. And verse 9 portrays the father not as impotent, but as omnipotent and in absolute control of, of his creation. Notice verse 9 with me. What will the owner of the vineyard do? What will the owner of the vineyard do? And here we see the great foolishness of the tenant farmers. In their foolishness, they have killed the, son's, uh, killed the landowner's son. But he is still alive, uh, Contrary to their expectations, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. As relates to Israel, uh, the father would come and remove them from their positions of leadership and hand it to the apostles who step into true Israel's leadership just shortly after this. Uh, Peter and James and John and others become the true spiritual leaders of true Israel uh, because the chief priests and scribes are removed by the Lord from that position. Some see in this a fulfillment that took place in 70 AD when the Roman army came and destroyed the city of Jerusalem. Uh, many are, are of the opinion that this is what that refers to. It, it might, perhaps, the city is destroyed with great loss of life, but Jesus is speaking to the leaders of Israel, in particular here in this parable. And verse 10 continues, Have you not read this in Scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous 
in our eyes. Uh, this quote from uh, Psalms describes a stone that might have been chosen at first to build Solomon's temple and, and, and then rejected. Uh, but that same stone is later used as uh, probably the keystone in that arch uh, you saw at the beginning. There was a stone wedged at the very top of that arch. That's the thing that holds the arch together. Uh, many believe uh, that this is what's being referred to instead of uh, the cornerstone uh, down near the foundation. But that Christ is this new central focus of his people. He's in this exalted position, having been raised by his Father and seated at his right hand. Christ occupies now uh, the central focus of his people and the central focus of a new building. I, I want you to hear Paul describe how the Father put Jesus in this place, the first place I'm going to turn to is Ephesians uh, chapter 1. Uh, and this describes how the Father did this very thing as soon as I can find it in, in my Bible. Ephesians 1.18. And Paul writes these words, Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Paul describes what we're reading in this parable that this stone rejected by Israel's leaders is made the central focus of the church. He's put above everything excepting God the Father. Uh, Paul says this again in Philippians 2. I, I want you to see that this exaltation of Christ is a consistent theme throughout the New Testament scriptures. Listen to this in Philippians 2.8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. <coughs> Excuse me. Lastly, Colossians 1.18, which says, And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. 
This stone rejected by the builders, this stone rejected by the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, uh, God the Father has exalted, uh, put him as the keystone or the capstone, and made him now the central focus of that group of people for whom Christ died, his bride, the church. He is the central focus now. Is he the central focus of your life? I wonder if you come to come to church and and uh, gee, I don't know why you come to church. I'm glad that you come to church, but is it a, at all centered around Christ? God the Father is is not displeased when we adore His Son. It pleases him to adore his son because he adores his son. He delights in his son. And God the Father has given us Jesus Christ, the image of him who is invisible, so that you too will delight in him and adore him and take great pleasure in the Lord Jesus. Is this ring true with you? Or, or are you here just to see your friends? Or are you here just for the social uh, environment, the, the fellowship we call it? Or are you here for Christ? Because this is where I hear from Christ, and this is where I worship Him. This is where He's exalted. This third statement of Jesus this in this clear message uh, is his father's grave pronouncement. And that was what I had yesterday afternoon, but I forgot to change it when I changed uh, point three. Not his exalted person, his grave pronouncement I thought was more adequate or more appropriate. And in this um, grave pronouncement, we see the father's ongoing generosity towards Israel. The ongoing wickedness of Israel's spiritual leadership and finally, this ongoing triumph of the Father and the Son, where the Father raises and exalts His Son to occupy the central focus of His church. So this is this strange uh, parable, this unique parable, but this crystal clear parable uh, that the hearers understand without question they know that Jesus is talking about them. And they don't like it one bit. They seek to arrest him, fearing the people. Uh, they leave him and go away. Uh, in this clear message, Jesus makes three statements. The first is about his father's gracious provision for the nation of Israel. How he has established them and protected them and and provided everything. Uh, the second statement Christ makes uh, is about his father's extraordinary patience. How his father has waited and, and, and as Israel has gone through prophet after prophet. And then finally the third statement he makes is about his father's grave pronouncement. Uh, the coming doom for these leaders. Uh, their rejection of the son. But then of the Son's 
exaltation. Uh, this clear message from Jesus. So by, by way of application, I've already asked if you have come to know Christ as your Savior and Lord, if you have trusted in his atoning death for the forgiveness of your sins. And if you're not sure, or if there's any doubt, uh, and, and I hope there's none, but if there is, come and see me following the service or, or one of the elders. For those of you who know Christ, um, consider the incredible provision that the Father has made uh, for you. He has given you everything that you have. Uh, life and breath and all things are from his kindness. Your spouse, your children, your employment, these are God's gifts to you. Everything comes from his wise bestowment. Is Christ the keystone of your life? Is he the central focus around which everything revolves? Should he be the central focus of your life? Uh, shouldn't that be reserved for your children? Absolutely not. Christ must occupy the keystone and put your children second. Uh, he must be the center of your universe. Your home must revolve around him and not around your kids' desires. Uh, we must center our lives uh, completely and totally around Jesus. And so, Christ, I pray that you would help us to make us a reality in our lives, that we would put our focus on you. Savior, I pray that you would enable us to do this by your indwelling spirit who lives within us. Strengthen us now as we move to your table and remember your death for us on the cross. Jesus, I pray in your name. Amen.